Not every story in the Bible contains an account of dramatic miracles or powerful prophets. Sometimes the story is about someone who quietly but resolutely goes about living a virtuous life. And such is the case with Ruth and Hannah. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine, episode 20. The title of this lesson is, All the City Doth Know That Thou Art a Virtuous Woman. And uh, these are the, the scriptures that we're covering today, are the book of Ruth and then uh, 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2. The stories of Ruth, her mother-in-law Naomi, and then later Hannah, who isn't connected to Ruth, but two stories that uh, at least thematically are connected. And if this is your first time joining us, welcome. I know we have new listeners every week, and uh, if you, in case you haven't heard it before, please get in touch with me with any questions you have about episodes past, present, or future. Love to hear them. Uh, if you give me your your first name and city, I'll read your question on the air. Email those in gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Well, let's begin with the story of Ruth. Uh, so the we're at the point in the history of Israel where the Israelites have spread out throughout the land of Canaan. They pretty much claimed what will become uh, their long-standing uh, hereditary lands. So the tribes have all spread out throughout the land of Canaan. And the tribe of Judah, Judah is the tribe that ended up uh, inheriting the land surrounding what is present-day Jerusalem. Back then... The Jews did not yet own or control Jerusalem. So one of the places that they did control was Bethlehem. And this is a little history on, on Naomi. So Naomi's husband was of the tribe of Judah and had some land in Bethlehem. But uh, there are the different lands of the different tribes have different characteristics. And that land around Jerusalem is... On, it is sort of on a, in a hilly area, it's highlands, and it's arid. And they had a 10-year famine. And in order to escape this, Naomi, her husband, her two sons, they had gone to Moab, which was about 40 miles, 40 or 50 miles away. And it's hard to say exactly where they settled. But it's across the Jordan River on the other side of the Dead Sea in present-day Jordan. And... They had found a life there that her two sons had married there. So this is where our story begins, which is that Naomi's, first of all, Naomi's husband dies. And she's a, a Hebrew woman. And she has two sons. And then her two sons die without any children. And children, this is a theme that will come up again and again in this, in this lesson and from time to time throughout our study of the scriptures, but children in Old Testament times, or in all in all the ancient uh, Near Eastern scripture, were so precious, and especially to women. It was one of the ways in which they found their value. If a woman was barren, it meant that God had frowned on her. It also meant 
that she might be neglected in her old age because if her husband dies, then she has no one to take care of her and she becomes... It's not as if the law of Moses didn't provide for someone, an old widow, uh, without any children, but then she was dependent on the community as a whole rather than having children who were specifically called upon to take care of her. So it was not only security, but it was a, uh, an indication of social standing. And now Naomi can't have any more children. She doesn't have a husband anymore, and she's probably too old. And her two sons are dead. So she feels like her life has taken a turn for the worst. And uh, the, as I was reading, this is the first time this has ever occurred to me, but as I was reading the story of Ruth, uh, it reminded me a lot of that old movie, uh, Fiddler on the Roof, because Naomi, Naomi is kind of like a matchmaker, and this, the story of Ruth is a love story. Uh, it's There's nothing super dramatic. There's no parting of the Red Sea. In fact, there are no miracles at all. And so it's really just a story of a matchmaker and a, and a couple that gets together. It does have some deeper significance if you're looking for it. Who knows whether it was intended, but we'll talk about that. Uh, but if you've ever seen, uh, I, as I was reading it, I just... Uh, I heard some of the songs in my head. I heard the songs from, from Fiddler on the Roof, Matchmaker, Make Me a Match, and uh, as as Naomi. So one of the things that they say to Naomi when she, when when her children die, then the then the word comes to Moab that the famine is over, and Naomi decides to go back home. She's like, you know, Moab has not treated me well. My life has taken a turn, for the worst. It's a dramatic turn, and uh, I may never be happy or taken care of again. So she decides to go home, and her two daughters-in-law are still alive. Orpah is the name of one, and they both and Ruth is the other, and they both decide to follow Naomi. But Naomi says, "What are you guys doing? This is this is your home. You're not going to leave your home because of me. Who am I? I'm I'm going to go to to where I live, and you're going to stay here, and you're going to live your lives, and you're going to be happy." And so Orpah volunteers once to go with her but when Ruth says that she stays and Ruth says let's not talk about this anymore because the my decision is made I'm going to follow you and your home will be my home your God will be my God later on she also says and we'll talk about what this might mean she also says where you're where you are buried there will I be buried well a lot of people think a lot of people when they try to identify the positive qualities of Ruth they list loyalty and i think she certainly was loyal but i, I was thinking about this there i believe there's more to it to her insistence on following ruth um we don't get a whole lot of details about their family life you know what it was like why did they marry ruth's sons what did they see in them did the sons talk to their wives about their belief in jehovah did they force them to convert before they would marry them or, or, I mean, compel them or agree that the wives would convert? We don't know any of those things. But it seems to me, just, just from the way Ruth acts, that she had been converted to the worship of Jehovah. And so when she obviously loved Naomi, but when Naomi was leaving, she thought, this, this might be my last chance to follow God. 
And if Naomi leaves and I, and I let her go and I don't follow her, then I can't worship God in the way that I've come to know is, is the true way. I can't worship the true God. I'm going to be stuck with my Moabitish gods. So when she says, your God will be my God, it might have been that it had been sort of understood that they would observe, and I'm just guessing here, I'm speculating, but I think it's interesting sometimes to speculate. It might have been just understood in their home. We're going to follow the religion that the men came with, and then when the men died, they they had their choice again. And so Ruth hadn't had to make a choice until then. What are you going to give up to worship the way you want to worship? And what are you going to give up for Jehovah? Because it had been easy. If that's true, and it may not be, but if it's true, then it's not only a story of loyalty, but it's a powerful story of sacrifice for God. And that's that's the interpretation that I choose to take, is that, and, and it seems to me to be supported in the text, which is Ruth is not only following her mother-in-law, Naomi, but she is she has a powerful conversion and she hasn't realized it until this point. She's not willing to give up worshiping God the way she wants to. She loves God. And that's, to me, that's very touching. Uh, so the story, if, if you don't know the story, and then, and then they go home and I always picture, uh, I shouldn't say always, I, Naomi is asked, is that you, Naomi? And Naomi means sweetness or the sweet one. And Naomi says, no, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means the bitter one, because God has treated me bitterly. And I always, uh, every time that I've read that passage in preparing for this lesson, I've said it in the voice of the the old matchmaker. So I think, oh, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. And that's when I when I first heard it in that voice. Then I started thinking, this is this is a lot like the Fiddler on the Roof, and just like in Fiddler on the Roof, pretty quickly uh, Naomi settles on somebody for for Ruth's future happiness, and he happens to be an older man who's well off. And as poor people in the nation of Israel, poor people obeying the law of Moses. Ruth and Naomi are taken care of. Uh, they, anyone who has a field, who's prosperous, who has a, a farm producing crops, as they gather their sheaves, the, the way that they would reap this is they'd gather a handful, cut it off at the base, tie it together, and then leave it sitting there, and then come back later and gather them. But inevitably, some would fall out of their hand, and if they'd been if they'd been fastidious in picking up all those loose sheaves of grain, whatever it might be, it might be barley or wheat, then they could have picked it all up and had it all. But the law of Moses said, if you drop something, then leave it for the poor. And so it was their tradition that poor people would follow the the harvesters and they would have whatever loose sheaves came their way. Now, Boaz sees, and we don't find out until later, that he's a little bit older and perhaps past the age where he thought he might even find a wife. Or maybe he's, we don't know exactly. Maybe he was already married. Maybe he was widowed. Maybe he was a lifelong bachelor. Hard to say. 
but in any case, it seemed it seems like he was single because uh, otherwise I can't imagine Ruth acting the way she does later. But he has a good he has a plentiful harvest and he's a generous man. He's willing to share it with. Uh, there are a number of people. There are a lot of maidens, and they're following the the reapers. And Boaz tells Ruth. He introduces himself and says, "Hey, I'm Boaz." And she says, "I'm Ruth." And uh, he says, "Well, feel free to help yourself to anything you can find." And then he tells his his harvesters, "Leave a little bit extra. You know, be even less fastidious than you normally would be, and make sure Ruth gets plenty of plenty of food to take home to her mother-in-law." Um, maybe he did that because he had a crush on her right away, and maybe he's just a generous man. Maybe it's both. But in any case, he was generous to Ruth. And Naomi hears about this, sees all the grain that Ruth has brought home, and says, wait, wait a minute, this guy is related to us. In fact, he has a duty to marry you because he's a kinsman of your your late husband. And it the... The tradition in, under the law of Moses was, if you were a brother, a kinsman, and especially a brother, but uh, in the absence of a brother, any near kinsman would do, then you had a duty to a man who died childless to marry his wife and to raise up children unto the, the name, under the name of the dead man. And if you had, if you took over his lands, then... Any, pro, any increase from those lands and the children and the glory that came unto the children of that house and the land, etc., belonged to the dead man. And it was considered a very selfless thing to do, and we have record already by this point in the Bible of people not wanting to do it. Uh, one of them is Judah himself, his sons. One of his sons married a woman, uh, died childless, second son married her, died, child, died childless, and then his younger son, they had to wait for him to grow up a little bit, but then um, when it came his turn, he didn't want to do it, and Judah didn't compel him to do it. And this is, you may remember from our lesson, this is why he turns into a harlot. She dresses up as a harlot and waits alongside the road, and Judah um, herself, the father of her late husband, Judah himself, the father of her late husband, comes in unto her. And she conceives from that, and uh, that was one of the great sins of Judah. And so we have a record already that uh, men might resist the idea that they're going to do all this work and, and be with the woman their whole life, and then all the glory will go to someone who's dead. So it's a selfless thing to do. Nevertheless, it was the custom. And Naomi says to Ruth, uh, this is your kinsman. And in fact, he's in line to marry you. So here's what you do. Wait until he's uh, done celebrating his harvest, and then you'll follow this tradition we'll describe and, and get a promise from him that he'll marry you. But Naomi gives her some tips. You know, first of all, put your raiment, wash yourself, put some scent on you, put your put your raiment on you, and then wait until he's eaten and drunk and he's sleeping and he's happy and so obviously this is a celebratory time they've had a ton of years of famine and here's a plentiful harvest and so after the harvest Boaz goes into his threshing floor and he and he celebrates he eats and drinks and then he falls asleep and 
and perhaps there was even uh, a crowd there you know all the all the people working on the harvest were celebrating together and according to their custom which this is one of the only one of the few examples we have of it and the only example in the old testament um Ruth lies down at his feet and when he wakes up he says wait who's who's here he sees that there's a woman at his feet and she says I am, it is me, uh, you're my kinsman, now spread your skirt over me and do the part of a kinsman, which means extend to me your protection and take me to be your wife. So a very bold move and very well-timed by Ruth. Um, now there's a, there's a concept in the law of Moses, which is redemption. And it the title of Jesus Christ as Redeemer was chosen very deliberately to hearken back to this idea of something being redeemed. And that is when it's lost, someone can come in and pay the price to bring it back into full usefulness. And this was the case for any property of a dead person. And it was the case for animals. So if, uh, as they describe, if a if a sheep or a ram or a bullock was born and it was the first male offspring of its mother, then it had to be sacrificed to the Lord. But the Lord didn't want sacrifice of asses. And so if it was a male ass, it had to be redeemed with a goat. And that meant that it was lost. It was given up to the Lord, but it could be, it could be brought back into use. It could be made a useful am animal. And if you didn't want to redeem it with a goat, then you had to kill it. And it had to go to waste. And so the idea of redemption, and it, was, and it happened for land, it happened for, um, and it was considered a form of redemption if you were to marry your brother's widow. And so the, the idea of redemption was very familiar to the ancient Jews. And so what Ruth is, in effect, asking Boaz to do is to redeem her, extend your protection. And he says to her, obviously, and this is where we get the title of the lesson, he says, obviously, you are an understanding woman, you're a kind woman, because here I am, you know, you, didn't, you, you could have gone after a much younger man, but you, you were generous to me instead, and... He's very flattered, and obviously uh, he's already stricken with Ruth. We don't. Ruth is never described as beautiful. She may be, she may not be, but Boaz certainly thinks so. And what's more, Boaz is a little worried that other people will think so. So the next thing Boaz has to do, he says, Yes, it's true, I am your kinsman, but there's someone who has a better claim to marry you. So let me talk to him, and then I can give you my answer. And then he gives her um, a lot of food to take home again. And it's just an interesting part of the story, no real spiritual significance to it. But he goes and he, uh, he meets the man, and he meets the man by the gate of the city, which is where a lot of public, it was almost like a courthouse steps, or, the, or even inside the courthouse, it was where this sort of public negotiation took place. And they didn't have written contracts. They made contracts orally, and they, and they made them binding by 
exchanging shoes, if you can believe that, but that was the equivalent of a signature. And this is where you could cue the song, Tradition! And Boaz invites this nearer kinsman of Ruth to come over, and they sit down and he says, you know, Ruth's husband died, and there's a certain piece of land, and it was really interesting the way that, that Boaz handled it. There's a certain piece of land, and you can redeem it if you want to. And he makes the land sound really desirable. The guy says, yeah, I, I think I will. I, that, that sounds great. I want that land. And then Boaz says, oh, but there's one catch. If you want to redeem the land, you also have to marry his widow, and you know, you'll know you be raising up offspring unto the dead men. And that's when, that's when this nearer kinsman says, oh, you know what? Uh, I don't want to endanger my thing. I don't know. Maybe he was already married. I don't want to endanger things at home. I don't want to overshadow my own children. I don't want to take away from what I already have going on. And Boaz made it sound like the land was what was desirable and the wife was not, when in reality, uh, he, he probably didn't care about the land. He had his own land. He just had a harvest. Uh, he was really hoping that the man wouldn't think that Ruth was desirable, somebody worth bargaining for, somebody worth saying, hey, wait a minute, I, I might want to redeem her. And perhaps the, uh, perhaps the man did not, had never met Ruth. But he did know, and this is, uh, I, I mentioned earlier, the title of the lesson, when Ruth finds, when Boaz finds Ruth at his feet, he says, I will, I will take this offer of yours because all the city doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. And that's such an interesting statement. He doesn't say because you've got a great sense of humor. He doesn't say because I really like the, the dress you put on. He doesn't say because you're beautiful. So that's a, that's a great insight into the character of Boaz. He says, everyone knows, not only are you virtuous, everyone knows you're a virtuous woman. So they all understand. They've, they've heard enough about Ruth. They know that she came, she followed her mother-in-law out of personal loyalty, but also out of love of God. And that's what Boaz is looking for. He, he's had to wait a long time, but he's found somebody who loves God and will do anything to follow God, and that's good enough for him. Now, that's the story of Ruth and Boaz, but uh, it's just interesting that, first of all, Christ in the Bible, Christ is often called the bridegroom. And so this is a story of a wife and a a bridegroom, and the wife in, in the New Testament, the wife of Christ is the church. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's one of the admonitions of Paul. So we can consider ourselves to be like Ruth, which is we're destitute. Uh, if we love God enough, if we're willing to follow, if we're willing to sacrifice for him, and if we're willing to ask for God to extend his protection to us, then God doesn't hesitate. He says, I know you're virtuous, and I'm going to take your offer, and I'm going to redeem you. And 
the and it's also interesting that uh, that Boaz says he will, but he also has somebody who has another claim, and it's similar to the war in heaven, where Satan says, uh, "Send me, but give me thy glory." And when he hears that there's no glory in it for him, then Satan is out. And and Jesus Christ says, Here am I, send me, and to thee be all the glory. Boaz is willing to raise up children to a dead man and give away the glory. He just wants to he wants to do his duty and he wants to have a wife and be happy, and he doesn't care where the glory goes with. He doesn't care if he's raising them up to another man's name. So it it has parallels not only in uh, the atonement with a redeemer and a sinner, with Christ and the church, but it also has a parallel in in the actual plan of salvation of God and Satan, or Jesus Christ and Satan, Jesus Christ offering to redeem everyone and to give the glory away. There's one more. Uh, there's one more statement that Ruth makes, which is, she says to Naomi, where thou art buried, there will I be buried. Now this is the the Hebrew idea of, of hesed, which is loving kindness. And the meaning of that is going beyond what is required. So not only is she kind, but she does it out of a different motivation than just duty. She does it out of love because after Naomi is dead, there would be no reason for Ruth to continue to stay where Naomi died, except that she loves Naomi and mourns her passing and genuinely wants to be where she remembers her. Naomi can derive no more good from Ruth sticking around after Naomi dies. But nevertheless, Ruth makes that offer, where, where you're buried, I will be buried. So I'm going to come with you, and I'm going to stay forever, wherever you go. And that is also, that's another reason I think that she did it out of love of God. She's, she's saying, I'm, it's not just that you're going there. It's that I, not only do I want to be where you are, but where, where, you, where I know you're headed, which is back to Israel, which is back to Bethlehem, that's where I know I want to be because that's where God is. At the end of the story, the final the final lines of the book of Ruth are that they had a child together and it was his name was Obed and their child had a child Jesse and his child was David. So Ruth and Boaz are great grandparents of the man who became the greatest king of Israel. And David is uh, referenced throughout Scripture as the height of the spiritual kingdom of Israel, and one of the one of the most consistent aspects of Israel's apostasies were that they kept worshiping idols, and their kings were guilty of this as well. But of all the kings of Israel, David is held up as the example of someone who was most faithful to Jehovah. In fact, everyone knew, it's recorded in the scriptures, everyone knew that he was an adulterer and a murderer, that he saw 
Bathsheba on the roof and that he arranged to have her husband killed in battle. And nevertheless, this, this shows you how seriously adultery was taken in the law of Moses. Nevertheless, they considered David such a great king and a loyal follower of Jehovah because he never was idolatrous. In any case, the the lineage, they're showing the lineage of the king. And they're showing a type of Christ, and they're showing a type of the, if you're looking for it, maybe it was intended, again, as I said earlier, maybe it, maybe it was intended and maybe it wasn't, but if you're looking for it, they're showing a type of Christ, they're showing a type of the plan of salvation, and, um, and of the atonement, and, and also showing the lineage of the king. And in the New Testament, we read two different ways. Uh, that Jesus Christ was descended from David in the line of Judah. One through Mary, his mother, and one if he had actually been the son of Joseph, which everyone assumed, at least in the early part of his life, if Christ had been the son of Joseph, he also would have been legally the king. Um... I'm not sure whether that's a little-known fact or not, but that is the purpose of the of the genealogies that are shown in the New Testament. And it may be that some people ask, why is Ruth in the Bible? And there are versions of the Bible that do not include Ruth for the reasons we talked about earlier. There are It's not a story of a prophet. There are no miracles. Uh, it may be that the the writer, the compiler of the early... Bibles, the early Old Testament, included Ruth because he knew the spiritual significances that we've talked about, or that he knew that from that line would come the Messiah. So that's the book of Ruth, a very interesting book. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Hannah. Again, not a story of a prophet at least not yet, not a story with any miracles, at least not the kind of miracles where you could look at it and say, like the parting of the Red Sea, wow, that's obviously a miracle. No one can deny it. It was the kind of everyday miracles that we could all experience in our lives. And perhaps most of us, or at least many of us have. It's a woman who year after year goes to the temple with her husband. Her husband has another wife. And that wife has a lot of children, sons and daughters. And Hannah, when they go to the temple, Hannah mourns because she has no children. And year after year, her prayer is the same. Lord, bless me with children. And we talked about why that was such an important thing. One one additional reason is, and this is why the last lines of the book of Ruth are so important, that a lot of people think ancient Hebrew women all hoped that the Messiah would come through their line. If they didn't have children, there was no chance that they could be one of the ancestors of the Messiah. Whether that's true or not, we know that this was Hannah's biggest trial, that she wanted nothing more. And I've always loved the name Hannah because it means grace. And so it points to the Messiah itself. It points to the our, our dependence on God for 
spiritual forgiveness for redemption. And this is the kind of person Hannah is. Now, it does seem like, we don't, we don't know exactly, it does seem like there was some domestic jealousy and perhaps pettiness. At, at least there was the part of that, there was that on the part of Hannah's sister wife who would torment her and would rub it in. And Hannah was given for her portion of the sacrifice. The, the animal is sacrificed and then parts of it they give to the priest, parts of it they burn, parts of it they eat. And it seems like Hannah was given a more choice portion of that feast. Now, was that because her husband loved her more? Or was it because he felt for her because uh, her sister wife was getting a bigger portion because she had descendants to feed as well? So he gave Hannah, the her husband Elkanah, gave Hannah the choice pieces of meat. We don't know, but it does seem that he attempted to be kind to her and that he uh, he said to her, you know, why do you need a child? He tried to console her. Why do you need a child? Am I, am I not as good to thee as 20 sons? You know, I'll, I'll console you, and it's okay that you don't have any children. Her husband seemed to have been very kind, but it still bothered her. And finally, she made this promise, and she's praying. In fact, she's praying out loud, and we know that because the the man who's the judge of Israel, this is after the book of Judges, but the reign of the judges is still ongoing. And Eli was one of the final judges of Israel, and he was succeeded later by Samuel. But Eli was the judge at this time, and he's watching her pray. He's watching Hannah pray. And in fact, he thinks that she is either crazy or drunk and he accuses her of, you know, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you talking to yourself? Because she's praying out loud, and she's so sincere to the depths of, from the depths of her soul. And she says, if you give me a son, he'll serve thee all the days of his life, and no razor will come upon his head. Well, we studied the story of Samson, and we talked a little bit about what it meant to be a Nazarite. And that the name of that covenant comes from the word Nazir, which means separate. And the word separate is also the root, is, is the original meaning of the word holy. In other words, the things that are God's should be separate from the things of the world. So it was a vow of holiness. And it was usually, well, I, didn't, I don't think I said this when we talked about Samson, but it was usually the kind of vow that you would take for a short time. So a Nazarite, wasn't a person necessarily. It was a time period. I'm going to be a Nazarite for a year while I... It was almost like fasting. It was like saying, I'm not going to cut my hair. I'm not going to go near a dead body. I'm not going to have any wine. Those were the terms that we know of, of that, of that covenant. And there may have been other dietary restrictions as well. So they had an additional covenant of cleanliness, and they were just more sober. And it was, it was the kind of thing you would do to get God to notice your petition. And Hannah says, no, no razor will touch his head from the time he is born. He, he will belong to God all of his days. So to be a Nazarite from birth was a little different. It was a step above. To go back to the example of Samson, his Samson's parents were in a very similar situation. His mother was barren. Uh, Samson's birth was 
therefore miraculous, and he was a Nazarite from birth. So to study Samson and Samuel together is a powerful contrast, and it's wonderful to see how someone's choices, how our choices can lead us, how far they can lead us in one direction or the other. Um, I think everyone listening to this podcast would agree that they have amazing blessings from God. Well, so did Samson. And nevertheless, he was able to take all those blessings and make wrong choices. And Samuel had similar blessings. And by making correct choices, was was venerated throughout Israel as someone who spoke with God and God spoke to him. So that's one aspect of the story is the powerful contrast between Samson and Samuel. Uh, and that and this is the miracle that I talked about. So she prays and she makes a promise, and then very soon thereafter she has a son. And so the next year. Uh, she says, I'm not going to go up because I'm still weaning my son. It's not time to give him to the Lord yet, but I am going to give him to God. And we don't know how long weaning took, but it seems likely if she followed Hebrew, what we know of Hebrew tradition, that she would have nursed her son for up to three years. So he was probably walking and talking and had learned a little bit about his place in his mother's covenant, or at least that he had to, he was going to have to be given to the Lord and, and live in the temple. And then she took him and she did what she promised. And this is an interesting, uh, it's such an interesting development because how many people make promises to God and then either forget them or when it comes time to keep them, they say, well, you know, it's okay that I, they make some excuse. And I'm, I, maybe this will date me, but I'm thinking specifically of the movie Lady Hawk. Uh, Matthew Broderick's character is a, a thief. And, and he says, at one point he's trying to escape from prison and he has to climb through the sewers. And he says, uh, he sees a log floating by and he says, Lord, if that's, and he thinks it might be a beast. He said, Lord, if that, if you make that a log, I'll never, I'll never rob anyone again. And then, and then it turns out to be a log. And then right after he swims out of prison, he needs some money to get himself out of town. And he, and he sneaks up behind somebody while he's still in the water and cuts his purse and swims away. And then as he's swimming, he says, I know what I said, Lord, never again. But I also know that you know what a weak-willed man I am. And I've seen this in, in, uh, other movies from time to time. It's usually comedy, and that was funny. However, I think that is pretty indicative of how people are. We'll find an excuse, if we can, to avoid keeping our vows to God. And when she... She didn't have any evidence. Hannah didn't know. God didn't say to her. And this is this is where the everyday nature of the miracle comes in. God never revealed himself to her and said, yes, I'm going to answer your prayer. I've accepted your petition and I'm going to hold you to it. In other words, you and I are making a covenant. She made a unilateral covenant with God. 
saying, If you do this, I will do this. If you give me a son, I will give him to you. Now, later on she could have thought, I would have had a son anyway. I know I was barren for a long time, but I would have had a son anyway. I don't know that God did this. And I love my son. He's my only son. And therefore, I changed my mind or, you know, I didn't really mean what I said. It would have been so easy because she didn't tell anyone that she'd made that covenant. There was no one to hold Hannah accountable for breaking her word to God. She could have had her son with her. And we know how much she loved him because as Samuel grows up, the book of, the book of Samuel says that he had this coat that he loved that his mother would make for him every year. So every year she'd come visit him and she'd bring him a present, she'd bring him clothes, and she'd spend her time making him something. And she loved him dearly her whole life, but she had to give him up. And she gave him up even though it had been her it, within her power not to do so. So she could have doubted, she could have chosen to doubt, does this miracle from God did I have a son because God heard my prayer? Or did I just have a son? It seems obvious that it was a miracle because she'd been barren for so long. But she would have, it would have been a very human thing to do for her to question that and choose not to believe it. And had she done that, we wouldn't be reading about Hannah today. We wouldn't know. We wouldn't have her story because she wouldn't have given Samuel to the temple. Samuel became one of the greatest prophets in Israelite history and the final of the judges of Israel. So what do we learn from Hannah's story? Well, Hannah and Ruth, there's something that ties them together for me. And Hannah's, in part of her prayer, as she's praying to God, she uses the word handmaid. Have pity on this, on the situation of thy handmaid. She says this to God. And I think it would benefit everyone listening to consider that word, whether you're male or female. Because there is a male equivalent, although it's not as... The, the male equivalent, equivalent is bond slave. And for some reason... A female bond slave is is translated as a handmaid, but it it meant it, it was an expression of the deepest form of humility. What Hannah was saying to God was, "I belong to you. Have pity, have compassion on the situation of thy handmaid, and bless me with the son." And Ruth said the same thing to Boaz. She said, "Now look, look with mercy on thy hand, on thy handmaid, and and do the part of a kinsman unto me, and spread your skirt over me, protect me, redeem me." In both cases, and and there are a few other cases in the scriptures where um, now handmaiden can the word handmaid or handmaiden can be applied several places in the scriptures. It's used. It can be applied about a third party um, without much spiritual significance. So there, you, you'll find, if you look this up in some concordance of the scriptures, you'll find it's used in a lot of places. 
but when it's used by a woman to describe herself, she chooses the title, then it's always used it's always used to show humility and to say basically I'm giving myself to you. It's either a uh, it's either used towards God or to a king or in the case of Ruth to a man she wanted as her husband. So I am thy handmaid means I give myself to you. I subject my will unto yours. Now that may not go over so well in our modern me too moment. But that's not the world they lived in, and it was very appropriate for both Hannah and Ruth to humble themselves in this way. And it's very appropriate for us, be we male or female, to humble ourselves to God this way and to say, I belong to you. Can you spread your protection over me? I choose to keep my covenants with you, whether or not anyone else knows about them. I choose to be faithful to them. I choose to interpret the events of my life as miracles. I choose to see thy hand when I don't have to. But if I make a promise to God, then I will keep it. And as a final note on this lesson, we have what I call the Psalm of Hannah, and that's 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now the lesson in the manual only goes up to 1 Samuel chapter 1. But Hannah could have had a number of attitudes about this. She could have said, well, I'm not going to... She could have said, the Lord didn't perform a miracle. This son was just going to come anyway. Therefore, I'm going to keep him. Or she could have said, the Lord miraculously gave me a son, but I'm still not going to keep my covenant. Or Or she could have said, the Lord didn't perform a miracle, but I'm going to keep my covenant and I'm going to do it grudgingly. Hannah didn't do any of those. Hannah, the next time she goes to the temple, the day she goes to the temple to give up her son, Samuel, who's going to live in the temple and serve God for the rest of his days, she has such a powerful celebration and prayer of thanksgiving to God. She knows it's a miracle. She doesn't just choose to believe it. She absolutely knows it. And she talks about, first of all, she talks about two things. She says, she, she talks about the horn of God, which is a symbol of power. And, and all over the scriptures, you'll see it used that way. And she talks about God as her rock. And that's right away, right at the start of the, the this, this prayer goes on for the first several 10 or 12 verses of chapter, of chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. And Right at the start is when she describes these things. The, the horn of God, he's heard my mouth. And the, the idea that God would hear the words of our mouth is found in a lot of places, both in the scriptures and in other sacred places for LDS people. That really is all we want from God, is that he would heed our words and pay attention to us, notice us somehow, that, that we would matter to him. And she is rejoicing that 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 prayer has been answered. And the horn is, uh, as as power, it's it's strength, it's the capability of accomplishing your own will. If you have a horn, then you are then you have the power to do. 
And then she calls God the rock. And this is an allusion back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, the song of Moses. You might remember that lesson where God, that's the first time that God is called the rock. And in that, in that verse, uh, Deuteronomy 32, 4, it's said that God is perfect. His works are perfect and he is perfect in justice. The rock is a symbol of protection or the power to stand. So we have offense and we have defense. In other words, we have the ability to make decisions and we have the, the ability to withstand the decisions of others just by putting ourselves in the protection of God. It's a beautiful, poetic prayer, and it's every bit the equal to any prayer, any psalm offered by David that Hannah creates. And I didn't, I didn't make a big deal out of this at the time when we talked about judges, but there, one of the judges was female. And we've talked, uh, from time to time, we've given various evidences that the Torah was a divinely inspired work. It was the first of its kind to feature women in this way, to be the equal of men. And I mean that sincerely. They, they didn't have the same social status as men necessarily where... Um, you know, a feminist would say, a modern feminist would say, no, women were, there were times when women were property and women couldn't inherit, etc. All of that, all of that is true. But women were looked after very conscientiously in the law of Moses. Provision was made for them at every turn. And there were even times when women were in charge. And Deborah from the book of Judges is an example of that. We mentioned her, but we didn't talk about this particular aspect of it. And here's another example with the story of Hannah. Her faithfulness is an example to everyone, and her and her poet her her literary prowess is the equal of David, who was renowned for his poetry and his musicianship. And I find that fascinating as well. And this is just a beautiful prayer. I, I encourage you to read the whole thing. It's pretty short. But at the end of it, she says, this is uh, Samuel. I believe it is chapter 2, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. She says, He shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And... Again, we have somebody prophesying or calling to mind the future Messiah. So if it is true that one of the reasons that women viewed barrenness with such horror was that they wanted to have the they wanted to have the Messiah come from their line, then it isn't isn't it interesting that immediately after having a child Hannah prophesies of Christ and the horn of his anointed. So the word anointed in Hebrew, Meshiach, which means Messiah, the Greek version of that word is Christos or Christ. That's where the name Jesus Christ comes from, anointed or chosen, the person chosen to perform a work. And later on, the kings, before this, Aaron and his sons, they were anointed for their work as high priests in the temple. The kings of Israel were all anointed. It means you're chosen to perform a specific work. But the Messiah, the anointed, 
is obviously the savior of all the world. And that seems to be what Hannah is talking about in this psalm. The Lord shall judge Jehovah. When you see Lord in small caps like that, the word is the original word is Jehovah. Uh, and her and her prayer is one of, it doesn't matter what earthly status you have. You could have a lot of children, you could have no children. You could be strong, you could be weak. The only thing that matters is how God looks on you. And she gives example after example. She, he lifteth up the beggar, and he sets him among princes. Uh, just fascinating Im- imagery and very vivid. And then she says, The Lord Jehovah shall judge the ends of the earth. And this is verse 10. And he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And that to me called forth the the one of the last verses of the book of Matthew in Matthew 28, 18. Jesus says, after his resurrection, Jesus tells the disciples, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. So exalt the horn is to give all power. He shall exalt the horn of his anointed means he shall give all power unto his Messiah. Very fascinating that she would have such insight into the coming of Christ. And also, at the time she was giving her son Samuel, we'll talk about Samuel in our next lesson, lesson 21, Samuel shared a lot of aspects with Jesus Christ, and his mission was very similar as well. And he came at a similar time where there were a lot of similar things going on in the history of Israel. So we have two women who figured prominently into the history of Israel who weren't prophets, who weren't notable to people that didn't know them. They didn't they weren't famous, they weren't renowned. They were average people who loved God and who were willing to keep their covenants and to to sacrifice. And they were handmaidens. They were they were abjectly humble to God. They were willing to ask God to extend his protection over them and give themselves utterly to him. What fantastic examples that Ruth and Hannah are to us, and I pray we can emulate them, that we can all be handmaidens or bond slaves, or we can give ourselves completely to God. We would be willing to uproot ourselves. We would be willing to give our most precious gift from God back to Him, just as they did. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.